throughout our lives, regardless of the situation, where we are, the pain that we feel, the giants we give credence to, God, we push all that aside and declare that you are king, that you are Lord. God, thank you for guiding. Thank you for being our king. We love you. In your name, amen. You may be seated. This is our fourth and final week of our series called Real Mature. And we've been asking this question, what does it look like to be spiritually mature? And how does one go about getting there? How does one do that? How do we become real mature? We began all the way back in week one. If you remember, we read Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And I'd like for us just to reread that passage again from chapter four. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he writes, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he goes on and he says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness." Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Man, I love that passage. I love it. See, we see here that God, he wants us to grow. He wants us to be fully mature. When the body is fully mature, then we are united together. We not only have unity with the other members of the body, but we also have unity with him who is the head, Jesus Christ. We understand that God wants us to be mature in the faith, but we aren't born again and suddenly mature. It doesn't work like that. Just like we aren't born as a baby and able to drive ourselves home from the hospital, growth takes time, it takes effort, and it only happens in the right environments. Things that are alive grow, but all living things grow at a different pace. 
They don't all grow at the same rate. And when it comes to growing, it's God who does it. And so we make a decision to surrender our lives to Christ. God comes in and he begins a work in us. The Holy Spirit moves inside and starts to clean us out. You know, he starts to clean house. We call this sanctification. Sanctification, where we have already been saved, but we continue to be saved daily by the Holy Spirit who removes sin from our lives, clearing the way, making room, if you will, for spiritual fruit to grow and to flourish. It's this process of sanctification that makes us more like Christ. And so our spiritual maturity is measured by how much like Christ we look. It is the measure of our Christ-likeness. Obviously, we will never become fully mature as we live here on earth. On this side of things, we live in a fallen world, and so we can, we can pursue maturity. We can grow in the faith, but we will never fully become spiritually mature. We will never be fully like Christ here. We can look back, though, and see how we have changed, how we are different I think a lot of times the testimony of the saved is, I am not who I used to be. I am not who I used to be. Those of us who are Christian, those of us who call ourselves Christians, call ourselves disciples of Christ, we have not arrived. We never arrive, but we say, praise God, I'm not where I once was. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how important it is to read and, and know the Word of God because it helps us become mature as believers. We can't fully know God without knowing His Word, and so we immerse ourselves in His Word. But in addition to knowing God fully, we are fed by His Word. That's how we are. Living things are fed. They grow because they receive nourishment. And so people have said, you are what you eat. And that's true for the most part. When we delight in his word, when we meditate on his word, when we allow his word to take root in us, our souls are nourished and we grow more like him. When we read it, it breathes life into us and our lives are transformed. Last week, we talked about the need to stay connected to God through prayer. We looked at John chapter 15, where Jesus says, he tells his disciples, I am the true vine and, and my father is the gardener. He goes on to say in verse uh, 5 there, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We said we got to stay connected to God through prayer because it's through that, that, that intimacy that we have there that we are fed, we are nourished, and through that intimacy, we are pruned so that we can bear more fruit. At the same time, prayer is this act of warfare where we allow God the gardener to pull weeds that would try and uh, choke us or strangle us. They, the weeds that, that are in our life and, and are trying to squelch the spirit. It's God who fights our battles for us, and so we surrender to him in all things, in all things. Today, we're going to talk about a subject that we don't often talk about when it comes to growth, though. I assure you, though, it is necessary in order to bring about spiritual maturity. It goes by many words. Some call it challenges or struggles. Some call it trials or tribulations or hardship. We're going to call it suffering. We don't like talking about this, and many times we avoid talking about trials. We act like to admit it is to focus on the negative. So we don't usually bring it up at parties. Those types of people aren't invited to talk about their struggles. 
that would be a real buzzkill. And while we may think that these difficult situations, you know, we, we can talk about those dreaded things, the, the death of a loved one, the, the, the dreaded phone call that you received, the disease that you found out you had, the loss of a job, a divorce, an unforeseen medical diagnosis of a child, a relational issue with a family member, you name it. While those things are difficult and terrible, and we say that those things are the opposite of growth, Many times they, pay, they play a key role in our spiritual maturity. If you have your Bible with you today, please turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. James is all the way back in the New Testament, way back there. And so we're going to start in uh, chapter 1, verse 2. If you uh, are using your YouVersion Bible app on your smartphone or tablet, just look up uh, look us up under the events tab there. You're going to find all the notes and scriptures from today uh, under there. So James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. James 1, 2 through 8. Please follow along as I read the word of God aloud. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed about by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Amen. See, this passage, along with the entire book of James, is written by James, the brother of Jesus. Mary and Joseph, we know they went on to have other children, and James is the oldest brother. At first, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. However, after he believed James, he grew into a prominent role in the early church and is recognized as the leading overseer, the, the first lead pastor, if you will, of the Judean church. After he gets his introduction out of the way in verse 1, James jumps right in here. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Man, that's an odd way to begin a letter. James is a pretty direct guy, though. He cuts right to the chase. Why would he say that? Probably because they didn't consider it pure joy when they were facing trials of many kinds. See, this letter was written to Jewish Christians spread across the Roman Empire, and they were experiencing persecution each and every day. Their leader, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, was crucified. He was dead and buried and resurrected on the third day. And since that time, he has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. But that persecution, it has not stopped. It hasn't stopped. There's no ceasing in the trials that the early church is experiencing. They are getting killed right and left for their faith. And so James himself actually will, will die a martyr a few years after this letter is written. As you can imagine, they probably didn't consider such things as pure joy. We're the same way. There are things that we do consider as joy. When we think of our family, it usually brings us joy. Our friends bring us joy. When we consider awesome experiences with awesome people, it makes us feel joy. 
There are a lot of things that bring us joy. And James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. I mean, I mean, man, what is James smoking? I mean, consider it pure joy? Are you kidding me? It doesn't make me feel joy. That's about as crazy as your brother, James, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or happy are those who are meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. Or how about this one? You are blessed when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I don't feel blessed. I don't feel happy when I'm going through those things. When I'm experiencing those things, it feels more like unhappiness than happiness. It feels more like punishment than blessing. But what James is saying and what Jesus is saying here, they're saying that, man, there are some things you don't know. And if we do know them, then we usually forget. And so they're there to remind us. Consider it pure joy when you experience trials of many kinds because those trials will grow us. Suffering grows us. That's the first thing we need to see today is that trials grow us. James is telling us the same thing today that he told the early Christians nearly 2,000 years ago. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Trials bring about perseverance, and perseverance makes us mature. We will be mature and complete. If we want to be spiritually mature, then we should want to uh, go through whatever it takes to get us there. Each trial, each difficult situation we go through tests our faith. The Greek word used for trials here is pyrosmos. Parasmos. It, it's not some random roadblock that is thrown into our way by some maniacal madman in the sky. It is, it's rather this trial, this testing that brings about a certain result. It's this trial that is directed towards an end. The one being tested should emerge stronger, should re- emerge purer from the testing. We say that a young bird is said to test its wings. In the same way, God tested Abraham when he commanded to take your beloved son, Abraham, take him up to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice unto the Lord. Later, when the Israelites, they entered the promised land, God did not remove the people who were already there. Instead, he left them so that Israel might be tested, and through their testing, they might truly become the people of God. As one scholar put it, they're not meant to make us fall, they're meant to make us soar. They're not meant to defeat us. They're meant to be defeated. They are not meant to make us weaker. They are meant to make us stronger. Therefore, we should not bemoan them. We should rejoice in them. The Christian is like an athlete. Every athlete goes into rigorous training because they know that they are being prepared for victory. The Apostle Paul, he knows this all too well. That's why he tells the church of Corinth, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. It will be worth it because God is worth it. We can rejoice when we face trials of all kinds because we know that they are making us ready. 
They are preparing us for the life ahead. Suffering isn't there to stop you. Suffering isn't there to stop me, but rather it is to bear in you and me what is necessary to finish the race. Look at what Paul says in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of glory of God. Okay, good so far. Not only so, we also glory in our sufferings. Not, let me try that again. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Paul, you're really ruining my life. All right? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, Paul tells us to boast in the hope of the glory of God, but at the same time, we're also to glory in our sufferings. That's like to to say, hey, I want to linger here while these sufferings are over top of me. I want to stay right here. I want to glory in them. I want to be right here. I want to enjoy them a little longer. Paul knows that if we want that hope, then we should want the suffering too, because suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance gets us through. It is the endurance that gets us through to the end. It is the commitment to stay the course no matter what comes our way. We don't want to be unable to finish the race. We want to be able to persevere to the end. There's this tendency, though, for us to all put labels on things. This thing is good. This thing is bad. It's what we do. If it's pleasurable to me, then it's good. If it's, if it's not enjoyable, if I don't enjoy it, then it's bad. We all do this. It's why we always seem to hear this question of why do bad things happen to good people? The underlying presupposition to the question is that there are indeed good things and bad things. That there are indeed things that are good and things that are bad, and there are people who are good and people who are bad. Now, I don't want us to get too distracted because the question is bogus, all right? The question is not even a real question, all right? Who gets to decide what things are good and what things are bad? Who gets to decide what people are good and what people are bad? When we ask ourselves this question, we put ourselves in this driver's seat behind the wheel, and are we even capable of making such judgments, That in our finiteness, we can decide what is good and what is bad. My point is this. If trials are used to grow us, to bring about the character of God, then trials must be a blessing. They must be a blessing. Trials are going to grow us into spiritually mature Christians. And we're going to try and label it as terrible or wrong If it's going to make us mature and complete, as James tells us, then we should be like, heck yes, bring it my way. And yet, if I'm being honest, I'm a little like, man, how about a little less kicks to the face, please? But see, trials are a blessing. I am blessed to suffer because God is doing something in me. C.S. Lewis, he wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says this, If God is wiser than we, his judgment must differ from ours on many things, and not the least on good and evil. What seems to us good may therefore not be good in his eyes, and what seems to us evil may not be evil. 
Trials bring about perseverance, and perseverance gives us what we need to finish the race. You're not going to hear me say today that God doesn't care about how we finish. You're not going to hear me say that God doesn't care about sadness or grief or mourning. You're not going to hear me say that God doesn't care what we go through. God cares about it all, even the very smallest parts of his creation. However, God sees the whole picture. God sees it all. And he knows what's truly best for each one of us. Every single one of us, he knows what's truly best for us. And sometimes what is best for us hurts. Sometimes what's best for us is uncomfortable. Sometimes it is, I mean, the struggle is real. But God is blessing us through it. That's what he does. God blesses. See, we lack the knowledge, the frame of reference, the authority to assess or define it as good or bad. God defines it as good because that is what he is. He gets to define what is good because he is good. And he makes it good. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is working all things for our good. It doesn't matter if you or I perceive it to be bad. God is going to use it for good. And why does God do that? Because he loves us. He loves us so much that he wants to make us more like him. That's the next thing we need to see today is this. God tests that which he loves. God tests that which he loves. Back to James. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Our faith is tested so that we might become mature and complete. If God didn't care about our faith, he wouldn't test it. If he didn't care about you and I, he, we wouldn't be tested. He wants us to become strong in our faith. He wants us to be found to be spiritually mature. He wants us to be found as those things because we, we are those things. When we are those things, we are like him. When we are spiritually mature, we are most Christ-like. When we are full of faith, then we are also intimately connected to him. God loves us, and he does a work in us. There's a passage in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, that best describes this process a little more fully here. Here's what it says. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. Man, there is such good imagery there. God is like this refiner's fire, this launderer's soap. We understand that a launderer's soap washes us clean. We get that. But refiner's fire, it says he's going to sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. I mean, picture this. A refiner, he takes raw metal, precious metal, silver, gold, and he melts it down in the fire. And in doing so, 
He's able to remove any impurities that exist. Thus a refiner's fire is exactly what you might think it is. It is a fire that is heated extremely hot. Extremely high temperatures. However, the one doing the refining knows just how valuable the metal is. And so he stays with it. He watches it carefully so it's not ruined. This is what God does with us. He refines us in this manner. We like the finished product. We like being holy as he is holy. We like being righteous. We like shining like him who is light. However, it's the getting there that's not the most fun. But he's good. He's good. He's not cruel. He would be cruel if there were some other type of fire. He destroyed indiscriminately, consumed whatever was in his path. We would be destroyed. At the same time, he would be cruel to leave us exactly the way we are with no hope of heaven at all. John Piper once wrote, we are impure by nature and by practice, but God will have no alloys in heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And yet he will have someone in heaven. He will have a redeemed people. His banquet hall will be full. And therefore, he must be a refiner's fire. If he were only a forest fire, heaven would be empty. If he were only an incinerating fire, heaven would be empty. And if he were no fire at all, heaven would be empty. He doesn't spare us from the fire, but he promises to be right there with us through the whole thing. There is no painless path to heaven, but this refining process will not end in our destruction. You and I will not be consumed by the fire. No matter how hot it gets, no matter how much it hurts, God is with us and will refine us daily. I know that that's a tough word to hear, especially for people like us who who like control. We want to control things. But God is in control of this process. It's out of my hands. I cannot control what happens, but I can control how I respond to it. And I can welcome it. Scripture tells us that we should give thanks in all circumstances, but we tend to reserve our praise and thanksgiving for those circumstances that appeal to us, those that seem most enjoyable in the moment. However, we can give thanks in all circumstances for we know who is in control. We can give thanks in all circumstances because we know the one who is love. We can consider it pure joy because we know that he doesn't withhold any good thing from us and that he loves us enough to take the time to refine us. I was doing some thinking this week, obviously. And I, I, come, I came to realize something that I think we have such a hard time relinquishing control because we want to have a say. We believe in our rights, our free will. We demand a voice. 
However, that which was given away, we have no say over. If I gave something away, it's no longer my possession. I no longer have ownership rights over it. And so in the same way, I gave my life to him. I gave it away. I have no right to be angry or sad or depressed about anything that happens because I no longer live, but he lives in me. If we gave our lives away, then why do we hold on to these feelings, these these preferences, these emotions, these attitudes, these selfish desires, whatever it is? Suffering reveals that. Suffering reveals that that still remains and still must be skimmed off the top. It tests what is there and reveals that which still must be surrendered. The last thing I want us to see today is this. Trials reveal faith. They reveal faith. The hard times that we experience, the struggles, the challenges, the trials, the persecutions, the affliction, they they don't produce faith. They don't produce it. Yes, we rely on God immensely during those times. And yes, we turn our hearts towards him and focus our minds on him. Yes, we rely on him for strength, but those things don't produce faith. But they reveal it. They reveal what faith is there. Counting it as pure joy, regarding all circumstances as an opportunity to take joy, this is truly the response of faith. That's what the spiritually mature do. They see things that the immature, they don't see. The spiritually mature see God at work, molding, shaping, refining, growing things. It's not that they don't experience the full range of emotions, as we've said all along, that we never fully arrive. But the spiritually mature, they they do get sad and angry like everybody else. However, they endure because they know that God is good. They trust in him because he's faithful. They hold God as their highest treasure, and in comparison to earthly trials, there simply is no comparison. Simply put, They persevere because God is worth it. How we respond to trials reveal just how far we've come, but they also reveal how much further we have to go. They reveal our faith. I don't know what each one of you has got going on in your life right now. I don't know what what each heart and mind is struggling with today, I've never walked in your shoes. I don't know what hurts you carry with you, what scars that you bear, but I do know what I've gone through in my own life. In the last 10 years, since I've been on staff at Highland Hills, my grandmother died. 2009 
than in 2010, her husband. The only grandfather I ever knew passed away. In 2012, I presided over my first funeral. A dear family friend of mine who was like a sister to me went to be with God. My wife and I, we'd been just leading a small group uh, a couple nights earlier at our home. She stayed after to talk. She slept on our couch that night. Two days later, massive heart attack. She was 25. In 2015, my mother passed away at the age of 62. You could say that I've had my fair share of grief and loss. I've experienced hard times. And this last year has been one of the hardest for me and my family. But just as I am reminded of God's plans and his incredible goodness in the lives of those who have gone before me, I remember that God is still at work in me. I'm not a finished product. You and I are being refined daily. We are being prepared for lives of ministry and service, all for the glory of God. God is filling up in you and me what we are lacking so that we may be mature and complete. And not only that, that we are also being prepared for a place far from here, a place where there will be no death and no sorrow, a place with no sickness or disease, a place where there will be no tears or discomfort, there will be no war, no conflict, not even stress or worry. Peace will reign. Love will abound. Joy will overflow. And until that time, there will be grace. Grace upon grace. And yes, I will endure these days because I know that there is an eternity to come. 10,000 years from now, we're going to look back. How big will our struggles be? A thousand years from now, we will remember what trial? What trial? A hundred years from now, will the hardship we experience be worth it? You bet. You bet. I'm reminded of the old hymn by John Newton. The second verse goes a little something like this. If you know it, feel free to sing along. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead Will you pray with me? God, we love you. 
There is nothing better than you, nothing greater, nothing stronger, nothing more powerful than you. There is nothing in this world that is good like you are good. And so God, we seek you. We seek your will for our lives. We seek your will for our church. We seek your will for our future. You hold our lives in your hands. And who are we to say, God, what you do with it? God, you have proven your love time and time again. We remember your faithfulness in the storm, your presence to walk through the fire with us. You never leave us, nor do you, nor do you forsake us. Forgive us, God, when we doubt your love for us. When we question your goodness or whether you really have our best in mind. God, we know that it is through those things, through those trials and those difficulties and those hardships, through loss and pain and hurt, God, we know that you are taking what seems bad in the moment, God, and you are making it good for us. You use all of it, God. So, God, we, we seek you. We pray, God, that you would use us in mighty ways, that you would use this church in incredible ways, in the community, in the world. God, whatever you want to do, God, we pray that you will do it. May your will be done. God, we we give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right now, we're going to enter into a time of response. We'd like to invite you to come pray at the altar if, you, if the Lord leads you.